Uh, Genesis chapter 8 is where we are tonight, friends and neighbors, for a few minutes. And so if you take your copy of God's Word, the first book in the Bible, and the eighth chapter as you're turning there, I remind you to be sure and pray for our good friend Bob Aaron, who's normally sitting right there in front of Miss Carolyn. Bob had three bypasses done uh, yesterday, and uh, we've gotten very good reports. He'll be in the hospital a few days. I was not able to see him today, but I plan on seeing him tomorrow. And uh, we uh, are trusting that he will bounce back very, very strongly. Bob was asymptomatic. He didn't have any symptoms, and he almost got released by his cardiologist until the cardiologist saw one bump on an EKG. He said, you know, that doesn't look right. Let's just be safe and do a heart cath, and they did, and found five blockages. And they just let two of them go because they were in supportive arteries and not main ones. And so he's had three bypasses and hopefully the, I don't know, I couldn't handle him blocked up. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do with him when the blood is flowing uh, and it's going right where it should be and he's liable to be uncontrollable. And so uh, pray for Bob if you would and give him a good word if you're able to do that. I know he'd appreciate that very much. Bob's a great encourager and we love him very dearly. Genesis chapter 8, let's look at the last verse of chapter 7, chapter seven twenty-four, and the first few verses of chapter 8. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were opened and the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, pay very close attention to these details because when the first thing we know, of course, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, but Noah had to wait 150 days for the waters to dry up. And so he was in the boat waiting for much longer than he was while it was raining. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, And the first day of the month, the waters were dried 
from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife, his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. One of the things that's remarkable about that passage of Scripture is how long they were all aboard that boat and really having nothing to entertain them. I would imagine that it was rote, routine. This is really a statement about Noah having to patiently wait on God. Now, I'm sure everybody in the room tonight just loves to wait. No, nobody likes to wait. That's something that typically is common to all of us. Most people I know, one of the most difficult things to do is to wait. And why do we not like to wait? Well, we don't like to wait because most people got things to do, don't we? We consider waiting most of the time to be a waste of time. And that's why we don't like it, whether it's waiting in line at a grocery store. I mean, if you're like me, when you get finished and the basket is full or the cart is full and you make that final turn from lane number 500,003 and you make your way to the long march toward the long line of 12 cashiers and there, of course, is only two or three in a line of 12 registers that are human beings there. If you're like me, maybe there's a few more on Saturday or Sunday, but the first thing you do is you take a survey all the way down the line and you look for what? The shortest line because you don't want to waste time. You want to move through there. You don't want to stand still. Somebody's estimated that the average person will spend six months of their entire life waiting in their car at red lights. You'll be at red lights for an entire six months of your entire life. And if you count all of the times that you're waiting in line, five years of your life will be spent waiting either in a stand-up line or a car line of some kind. I mean, that's like, you know, the amount of time. It's the reason you want to buy a good mattress because you're going to spend a third of your life sleeping, right? You're going to spend five years of your life, you live a long time, waiting in some kind of a line. And when we do, it just drives most people nuts. Certainly does me. And the reason is because we're not very patient. The same is true when it comes to our relationship with God. All of us in here would say that we love the Lord, but all of us would probably say we really don't love him quite as much when he makes us wait. Nobody likes to wait, and yet waiting on God, learning to wait on God, and learning to be patient for the timing of God and the purposes of God and the plan of God is part of growing in faith. 
Isaiah 40, 31 is one of the Bible's best loved and best known verses. Many of you learned this when you were a child in Sunday school. But they that wait upon the Lord, and there it is right there. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall walk and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the whole idea behind that statement is, of course, they who learn to wait upon the Lord and don't bail out on the Lord and don't make their own way, those who learn and do patiently wait on God's timing will mount up with wings as eagles. They will renew their strength. Those who don't wait on the Lord, don't learn how to wait on the Lord and make their own way, the last thing that happens usually for them is that they have renewed strength. They usually just increase their level of spiritual windedness. So that's why it's so important to learn to wait on God and to not rush out ahead of God. This is a very biblical concept that we learn to see the value in waiting. Did you know, if you were reading closely there and have paid careful attention, you should know that Noah did not just spend 40 days and 40 nights aboard the ark. Everybody understand that? He spent just over a year aboard the ark. And that's made clear in this passage of Scripture. It doesn't so much say that, but if you look at the passage of Scripture that we're reading tonight, there in verse 18 of chapter 8, where actually it's a little bit earlier, verse 14, in the second month on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then if you go back to chapter 7 and verse 11, the Bible says in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, the fountains burst forth. So did you see that? In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the rains fell. And then in chapter 8, it tells us in the 601st year of Noah's life, in the second month, the earth what? Dried out. That's almost one year to the day. All right? So Noah was a long time with a bunch of stinking smelling animals and his stinking smelling family that he loved very much, by the way, I'm sure, but they still stunk to high heaven, aboard this boat. And don't you know that required a boatload of patience? And it's interesting to me that during this time, and of course, we don't really know everything that happened over that year, but what's missing from the Bible is any conversation between God and Noah. And so for all we know, Noah doesn't hear a word from God. The last recorded word we have from God to Noah is come into the ark. And then God shut the door. And until the time God opens up his mouth at the, at, in the end of this passage that we've read and says, now go out from the ark, there's not a recorded word from God to Noah in the Bible, which probably increased Noah's spiritual stress level just a little bit. I'm sure Noah had a lot to say to God, but we don't have any record of God actually communicating in a way. And here's the thing. The reason that that's so beautiful is because all of us probably in the room tonight have had times in our lives where we just have failed to hear God speak at all in our time of spiritual darkness. 
And we wonder why God isn't moving. We wonder why God's taking so long. We wonder why God's not coming immediately to the rescue and making all this junk go away. I have a feeling that all of us could relate to that. And that's probably why it's given to us this way. Because Noah probably began to wonder at some point if God had forgotten him, if all of this was just a, uh, a boondoggle, if he was going to end up dying just like everybody else. And I know a lot of people in the church, and that's the way they feel. They feel forgotten. They feel lonely. They feel isolated. They feel abandoned. They're wondering whether or not God is a million miles away. Life get pretty lonely at times, particularly when you get stuck in one of these divine waiting rooms or these divine holding patterns where God's not moving on your appointed timetable. But just when Noah thinks maybe it couldn't get any darker, he sees a glimmer of light and then chapter 8 dawns and we see a glimmer of light. But God remembered Noah. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think God had ever forgotten Noah? So then why does, it, why does the Bible use language like this? Because we know God had never forgotten Noah. He'd never cast off Noah. But why does the Bible say that God remembered Noah? Well, he, he'd never forgotten Noah. But it's just that God had some things that even Noah needed to learn that he could only learn by waiting on the Lord. That's the only way really faith can be deepened and trust can be broadened. And so this is another wonderful example of how to respond when God says, wait. Why does the Bible say that waiting is a valuable thing? And how does the Bible say that we ought to react when God just doesn't move as quickly as we think that he should? Why and how? Let's address the why question first. Why do we wait? Well, there are several reasons, I think, that God from time to time will place us in what I've sometimes called a divine holding pattern. That's what aircraft do when they get to the airport, maybe, and there's a problem at the terminal or there's congestion on the ground. Air traffic control will put them in what's known as a holding pattern. They just kind of start flying around in circles until they're given clearance to land. Well, God will do that to you sometime. He'll put you in a divine holding pattern. And he's done that. God has a record of doing that all throughout redemptive history as it's recorded in Scripture. He's done that to some of the great heroes of the Bible. And most of those people that we find recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith, are indeed people who had to learn to wait on God and who had to endure times where God seemed to be remote and where God was, at least from their perception, silent. Take Abraham, for example. Now, Abraham is the living embodiment of faith in the Bible. We're going to be studying Abraham as we move along in Genesis. And God had called Abraham, and God showed up and spoke very clear words to Abraham. And Abraham believed God, and Abraham obeyed God. He left his home. He left his family. He took a caravan with him. God didn't give him a roadmap, didn't even tell him exactly where to go. He just told him to start walking, and he would give him divine guidance on a daily basis. And so Abraham was told by God, given this covenant of God, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And from the time Abraham was given that promise until the time that that child was born, in order to be the father of a great nation, where there is no nation, you're the nation, 
Just you and your immediate family. You're the nation. But God says, I'm going to make you to where your progeny outnumbers the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. Well, if there's just one guy, in order for that to happen, you got to have a baby. You got to have that first baby. And that was a problem. You know how long Abraham had to wait? From the time of the promise until the time Isaac was born? 25 years. Had to wait 25 years. That's a long time to wait when you're becoming older and older and older. So Abraham had to learn to wait on the Lord. It all wasn't always, his, his waiting wasn't always a pretty picture either, as we'll see in a moment. Joseph had to wait on the Lord. Joseph had all these great dreams. Joseph was the greatest dreamer in the Bible. <clears throat> Wanted to, God had given him great leadership gifts, great prophetic gifts, and Joseph wanted to use them to honor God. But before Joseph could get to a place where God could use him in the most maximal kind of way, here's Joseph. He's got to languish in prison for years in order to learn some very important lessons about God that he never would have learned otherwise. And he looks at his brothers when it's all said and done. He said, you intended this to harm me, but God intended it for what? So he looks back on all the pain of his life and he realized he'd waited on the Lord. He'd done it right. And his strength was renewed. He'd had a greater confidence in God. And he'd mounted up with the wings as eagles as he became prime minister of Egypt. David was anointed king as a teenager. How old was David when he actually received the crown? 30 years old. And he was on the run from his life. Saul was chasing him instead of seeing him as an ally. Saul, who was half crazy anyway, saw him as a threat and determined to kill him. And so David had to run through the wilderness of Judah for his life for years until the promise of the Lord became a reality. So you have many of them. We could go on who were promised of God and yet had to wait on the Lord for the promise to reach fulfillment. And this was the case with Noah. God had told Noah, build the ark. Uh, there's no water around. You don't even know what rain is yet. But I just need you to build it. Tell people that need to trust me and to come on board. It took Noah 120 years just to construct the ark. Before the first rain ever fell. And then once he boarded the ark, take him another year. Uh, in order to see dry land ever again. So he had to learn lessons that he could only learn through delay. And nothing really, I, you know, we'd all agree, not, there are few things more frustrating than delay. Nobody likes to be delayed. You don't like to get stuck in traffic. I had to uh, run, pick up Judy uh, before church tonight, and I went west on Nine Mile Road, and I could see it up on the horizon. There was one of these mobile homes, a double wide, that was stuck all the way, trying to make a turn. The guy got stuck, and he was all the way across Nine Mile Road. And, I, you know, my first thought was, and fortunately, I, I, I reached a place in the road where I could turn around, because my first thought was, I want nothing to do with that. Because I could see nothing but taillights. I don't know how long. I turned back around and went back up guided to 10 mile went back that way but we don't like to be delayed but here's the thing delay is inevitable in every spiritual journey at some point along the way because that's how God uses that 
to grow our faith? And that's, that's the answer to the why question. Why? Why is it important to wait? Let me give you a few reasons to jot down if you're taking notes tonight. The first is because God developed patience in times of waiting. And patience is a Christian virtue. We are like God <clears throat> when we are patient. God will test your faithfulness during times of waiting. God will test your obedience in times of waiting. He inspects our faith as we wait on him to see if we're going to remain steadfast and immovable and true. Somebody once said that people are like tea bags. If you want to know what's really inside them, you have to put the hot water to it first, right? And nothing proves the genuineness of faith like conditions of boiling water, times that are very difficult to endure. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5, 3, and 4. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, which is just an odd thing to say. That's like count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's one of the paradoxes of the Bible, that when you read it for the very first time, if you're new to the faith or maybe even a lost person trying to read and comprehend spiritual truth, you'll read a statement like that and say, what's that all about? We rejoice in our sufferings. Who re How can a person rejoice in sufferings? Because we know that there are good things that can be developed in us that can only come out of the tea bag when hot water is applied. No hot water means no good stuff. Knowing we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance, patience, steadfastness. And endurance produces what? Character. And character produces what? See, one thing leads to another. And the development of these Christian virtues all have one thing in common. They come as a result of enduring what? Suffering. Struggle. This is where the good stuff comes from. And without it, we're left usually very shallow when it comes to our faith. So suffering produces perseverance, patience, patience produces endurance, and character is the end result. And patience is one of God's great qualities. You know, God is a patient God, and aren't you thankful for that? I've known people that have procrastinated about matters related to faith, and then finally they cross the bridge and their greatest um, personal gratitude when it comes to their relationship with God is that the Lord was patient with them, with him or her. And the Bible says that about God in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is patient toward you, not willing that any should what? Perish, but that all should reach repentance. Many of us, when it comes to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, are impatient sometimes, particularly in difficult times. We, we, have there been a time in your life, you ever had a day where you looked up, you didn't really want to die, but you'd be okay if Jesus came again, like that moment, that day? Be perfectly fine with me if the Lord came, just took me home right now. Well, we've all had times like that in life. And the reality is the reason that the Lord hasn't come back in large part is because God is a patient God and he wants the gospel to go to more people and he wants us to continue to minister the gospel and he wants more people 
to spend an eternity with him, with us, in the kingdom of heaven. And so the Lord is a patient God. It's like love. Sunday we talked about how to be God-like is to be a loving person and to love others irregardless. Why? Because God is what? Love. Well, not only is God love, not only is God holy, not only is God a consuming fire, not only is God spirit, God is, God is patient. Even with obstinate lost people, was God patient with Israel? Even though they were stiff-necked and stubborn? Yeah, he was patient with them. And he's patient with us as well. But it's something that we all, I mean, if we admit it tonight, I mean, how many of you would just say I struggle with patience or have struggled with patience through much of my life? Would you say amen tonight? That's me. I'm amening with you. We struggle with it. Somebody said one time, patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Found seldom in a woman and never in a man. (laughs) But if you're going to be godly, you got to learn patience because it's to be godlike. And you'll never learn patience if you're constantly, if everything is happening just like you design it. You'll stay the most impatient person in the world and character will never be developed in your life. And so God prescribes times of delay, times of waiting. And if that's you tonight, uh, God is saying to you, don't give up. Don't lose heart. I'm still on the throne. I still got you right in the hollow of my hand. I will not drop you. I've got everything under control. You just need to trust me. I'm teaching you to become more like me. All right? So, Uh, God is developing our patience in times of waiting. Second, God deepens our sensitivity in times of waiting. Um, Humility is also a God-like virtue. Uh, The only time Jesus ever defined what his heart was like is in Matthew 11 when he says, Learn from me for for I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Well, humility is to look like Christ. And you'll never learn to be humble and dependent on God unless you're put in a position where from time to time, if God doesn't come through, you're not sure how it's going to happen. Those are actually good positions to be in. Uh, God's great desire, you know, a lesson that I'm still learning in life is that God wants me to see him as my security, not my 401k, not my 403b, not my bank accounts, my cash accounts, my property portfolio, my rental properties, whatever. Not that you shouldn't plan for the future. I do, and, and you should too. But I think sometimes we trust that stuff more than we trust God. Because there was a lot of nervous people a week or 10 days ago when the stock market was in a free fall. Everybody's wringing their hands. And that's because sometimes we have a misplaced security. So when God puts us in a holding pattern, it's to remind us, I want you to stay connected to me. I want you to trust me more than you trust anything else in this life. 
And for Noah in the position he was in, Noah didn't have anything to fall back on. Noah was in that position, wasn't he? Money wasn't going to do him any good. Stocks weren't going to do him any good. Bonds weren't going to do him any good. All the property in the world was underwater. So he didn't have anything to liquidate, right? I had a boat, but it was full of animal excrement. Who would want it? And so, you know, he's in a position where he has to trust the Lord. God had welcomed him in the ark. We don't know if God had given him another word over that year or not. But when he went aboard the ark and God shut that door up to that point, God had never given him the first word about what would happen when it was time to leave the ark. He'd never said a word about exiting the ark. He'd only given him instructions about getting aboard the ark. No navigation, no rudder, no quartermaster's wheel on that boat. It was just designed to float. And so they're just bobbing out there like a, like a fishing cork. And Noah's totally dependent on God to bring that thing. He has no idea what part of the earth he's going to land on, what it's going to be like, what's going to turn up when he walks off of the ark. No idea whatsoever. And yet the beautiful thing about that is that Noah had to trust God. God was the only thing the man had. And the weight kept him dependent on God for what would happen next. And that's what's beautiful about it. So listen, when God is not talking to you like you think, when he's not revealing things as quickly as you think that he should reveal things, when he's silent, you don't really have two choices. You either keep praying and keep walking, or you despair and you give up. I mean, it's basically the only two choices. You keep praying and keep walking in the Spirit of God, or you quit praying, get disillusioned, and you run. Y'all ever read the book of Hebrews? Carolyn has read the book of Hebrews. She got me to preach on it. On me for a year to preach that book, and we did it. Man, I grew, I'm going back through some of that material in my quiet times in the morning, actually, because it's a hard book, isn't it? It's a tough book. And I was having a conversation about a passage in Hebrews, one of our Connect Group leaders today, who's doing some teaching in Connect Group out of Hebrews. And I reminded him, I said, well, remember the context of Hebrews? They're under tremendous what? Persecution. And what's the writer? Don't know who the writer was, but what's he concerned about? He doesn't want them to give up. He doesn't want them to lose heart. He wants, to, he wants them to remember Christ and to remember how much Christ struggled and how much Christ suffered for them. And he was reminding them all through that. Listen, some of y'all are talking about turning back and going back to Judaism. What are you going to go back to? A bunch of bloody sacrifices when there's already been one once for all sacrifice offered that's far superior to all those bulls and goats and calves that are offered on an altar that can cover sin for a moment but cannot purge it from you forever when Christ has already done that? What are you going to go back to? And so he encouraged them, I don't want you to grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who journeyed all the way to the cross even though he knew it was going to mean tremendous pain bearing the sin of the world and yet he didn't tuck tail, cut bait, 
run away. And that's our model. And so you don't want to give up. Jesus taught his disciples as a part of learning how to pray. He taught them the parable of the persistent widow, the widow that just kept nagging the judge. Y'all remember that story? She, I just picture this little old lady throwing rocks at the window when he's trying to sleep. Hey, hey, just worse than a barking dog at night. And finally, the judge threw up his hands and said, look, I'm going to give this woman whatever she wants because I'm just tired. I need a good night's sleep. And the Bible says Jesus taught that as his disciples to teach them to always pray and not lose heart. So that's what God wants. Even in times when God is silent, God may be silent, but can I make a statement tonight? He's never still. He never takes a nap. He never goes on vacation. He's never out of the office. He may be silent, but he's always active and always involved. And that's why in those times where you can't sense God is speaking to you, the most important thing you can do is keep talking to God. And that gives you the necessary strength, reminds you who God is and what God wants to do. And then third, God directs our path in times of waiting. God uses uh, these divine timeouts sometimes to help clarify where he wants to take us in life. Because um, I think God's plan for your life always involves a place. Um, from 1995 until 2005, God's plan for my life involved a place, and it was southwest Missouri. And from 2005 to 2018, God's plan for my life involves a place, and that place is northwest Florida. And so God's plan for life always involves a place. And God wants to get us to the right place. I mean, when, when God put Jonah in a holding pattern... It was to get him to a place that Jonah didn't want to go, but it was the place where God said, this is where I need you to go, right? And so he had to get into a timeout. And, you know, the place of his timeout had him smell like fish guts for a long time. Not a pleasant place to be. When Joseph was in prison, Joseph's time in prison was to get him to a place. The chief administrative official to the king of the most powerful nation on the planet, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It would be the equivalent of being the chief of staff to the president of the United States. Pretty important position, right? Second most powerful man in the kingdom. God, the most frustrated, and we haven't gotten there, later on this year we'll pick up and conclude our series in the book of Acts by looking at the missionary journeys of Paul. And the most frustrated you ever see Paul in the book of Acts is when he's not able to get a bead on where God is calling him to go. Now let me tell you, that's the super apostle Paul. And if he's struggling with it, it makes me feel a whole lot better in my struggles. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we tend to think, oh, Paul, God just audibly spoke to Paul right, all the time. And he was having some frustration. He thought he ought to go to Mysia, and there was a roadblock. And then he said, okay, it's not Mysia. It's got to be Bithynia. Bithynia is the place. It's wide open, fertile territory. So he tries to go in Bithynia, and the doors are shut. And so he's frustrated. You come to Acts chapter 16, and you've got the apostle Paul. He was probably bald based on uh, 
uh, descriptions of the church fathers that we had of him. But what little hair he has, he's probably pulling out. And that's where God finally shows up. But it was only after a period of prolonged silence where Paul was trying to create his own door only to have God close one door after another. And God finally speaks. And it's a man from, anybody remember? The Macedonian man who comes and says, come over and help us. And so when the time was right, God spoke. But it was to get Paul to a necessary place. And so this is the same thing that happens with Noah. Noah has to slow down for a long time. But he's on a journey to get to the next place. A place that he doesn't know anything about at this time. Same was true with Abraham. God had a place. It was the ancient land of Mesopotamia. We know it now as the land of Canaan. He left Mesopotamia to go to Canaan. One place led to another, but there was a lot of silence in the journey. Look at Genesis 8.4. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It's a hard word to say about five times fast. Modern day Turkey. Um, and several months uh, would pass more. Several more months would tick off until God would open up his mouth and speak to Noah. The thing comes to rest, but they're on a mountaintop literally. And only the peaks of the mountains are exposed. They really don't have any place to go. They've got to wait till that water recedes down, 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 down. And it took a long time for God to open up his mouth. And then the first recorded words of God to know in over a year, based on what we know, are recorded here in verse 15. God said to Noah, now go out of the ark. After a year, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. Birds, animals, creeping things that they may swarm, be fruitful, multiply. Verse 18, so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And what you need to notice there is that God was at work the whole time. The whole year God was at work. Got him right where he wanted and we're thankful. I don't know how many of you saw the movie that came out a few years ago about Noah at the theaters with Russell Crowe as Noah. Did anybody go see that? Oh, it was terrible. It was an awful movie. What anything biblical about it. But that's not the Noah you see from Scripture. God took him to the perfect destination because he patiently waited on the Lord during a very long period of dryness. My life's verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on all your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and here comes the promise and he will what direct your path that's right because God's plan always involves a place now very quickly because I got to land this plane uh, tonight very quickly let me address the question how should we wait 
And let me give you three, again, two or three suggestions uh, that I think will help to make your time of waiting a very positive experience. First, uh, learn to wait in community. Wait in community. The thing that's great about Noah is the fact that he had several other believers on the boat with him, namely his family. So he wasn't all by himself. There's a time when, uh, when being by yourself is a good thing, but being by yourself on a boat with animals for a whole year, I think, would have been a disaster for Noah. And God knew that. There's a reason that solitary confinement is an effective form of punishment because nobody likes to be alone. We're created. Even introverts need other people. There's something socially wrong with a person who cannot function in another relationship with another person. And so waiting in community is very helpful. This is why God designed the church. How many of you know somebody that when God disappointed them, the first thing they did was bail on the church, run from God, run from Christian relationships, isolate themselves? All of us have known people like that. It's like, where did they go? I know times are hard, but this is a time that you need other people in the Lord. You need people around you. I mean, Moses got tired. He need guys to come and hold those arms up when they started to drop down. And you need that too. And so learn to wait in community. Don't bail out on your church. Don't bail. You need a small group. You need big church. You need to be in studies with other people. You need to be socializing with people that know the Lord. Wait, learn to wait in community. That's what Noah did. He, now, God prescribed it that way for him. He had a built-in community, but thank God he had it. And so this is just a very important. It's a reason the Bible says, again, in Hebrews, one of the most familiar passages in Hebrews, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As some are in the habit of doing. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews knew that some people had neglected the meetings and they were in a slow drift away from the Lord. He knew it was going to be a disaster. So don't give up meeting together. Don't run from God when you need to be running to God because we have a responsibility to one another. The Bible says in the book of Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You need others. And others need you. And when you surround yourself with others, listen, isolation is a killer. Don't isolate yourself when God seems silent. Stay with the group. Wait in community. Two, wait actively, not passively. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I mean, first of all, I'll tell you what I don't mean by that. Uh, I don't mean by waiting actively. Well, God is silent. So here's what I'm going to do. Let's just make it happen. No, I know some people like that too. You know, we just didn't make it happen. Let's do it. Well, what has God said? I don't know. I can't get anything out of God. All I know is I'm just tired of standing still. Let's get after it. I need this to happen. I'm tired of driving this old clunker. Well, I thought you said the note on that thing was $500 a month. It is, but I'm tired of driving this clunker and I'm tired of waiting on the Lord. You don't want to, that's not what I mean when I say learn to wait 
actively, not passively. By that I simply mean don't retrench into a hole and begin this woe is me thing. You stay active and spiritually engaged in the work of the ministry. Because let me tell you, nothing will encourage your spirit in a down spiritual time more than when you're intentionally looking for opportunities to be a blessing to other people. Pour your life into other people. Volunteer to serve at the soup kitchen. Volunteer to serve at the Safe Harbor Center. Volunteer to serve at Waterfront. Determine you're going to become a volunteer in the preschool or take a children's class or whatever. Start singing in the choir. Look for opportunities to stay engaged in your faith because that's where the blessing comes from. And even though you still may have stuff in your life that's perplexing to you and maybe you're in difficult times and you're ready to get out of it just by serving other people, life is no longer just about you. And you recognize, I'm not really here for life to be all about me. There really is a blessing when it comes to pouring your life into making a difference in the lives of others. You know, Abraham, speaking of, was one of those guys that determined to make his own way. God has told me I'm going to be a father of a great nation and I've been waiting 24 years and I'm tired of waiting. Wait a minute, there's Hagar. She's a slave girl. She's a lot younger than my wife. Probably have better odds with her. And he got Sarah, his wife, to jump in on that deal. You know what? I'm tired of waiting too. I want a baby as much as you do. Let's see if we can't make it happen. And they're still fighting in the Middle East today. And that's the reason why. Ishmael's descendants are now the Arabs. Isaac, who eventually came along, his descendants are Israel. They were fighting then, and they're still fighting today. So you don't kick a door in, and you don't try to make a way when God hadn't made the way, but you do stay active, and you do continue to serve the Lord. Everybody's with me? And that makes the waiting much more um, endurable. And then finally, wait faithfully, not fearfully. This is a challenge because the unknown can scare the life out of you, especially when times are tough and you don't know what a day is going to bring and you don't know what your situation today is going to mean next month or six months from now or next year. And the math isn't working out. And it's very easy to be totally immobilized by fear. If you're not careful, everything Noah did throughout this whole episode is an act of faith. We never see Noah fearful. There's never an indication. He may have questioned God, but there's never an indication that he never really trusted God. He was the one man that stayed true to God in a whole generation of godlessness, built the ark on dry land. Moved his kids aboard the boat. Tended those animals over a year. But he doesn't lose his patience. Doesn't lose his cool. Doesn't get angry with God. Doesn't shake his fist at God. When God didn't move quick enough to suit him. He learned patience. 
He stayed faithful and he became a better man for it. It's like what David wrote in the 40th Psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. This is the same David. Of course, Saul's trying to kill him. He's on the run for his life. And David had the opportunity. You remember, hey, 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 David had the opportunity to kill Saul. He could have taken him out. But did he? He didn't do it. I will not touch the Lord's. I will not react in fearful uh, impetuousness. I will wait on the Lord. And God set his foot on the rock and in his time made him king. When up to that point, he'd been nothing but a shepherd boy. That's waiting with faith. So the end is usually worth the journey. Realize the value of the wait and never lose heart. This is God's word and all God's people said.